I hope you all uh, enjoyed your lunch. Um, we're good at eating. That's one of our strengths. Um, I want to make a few more uh, comments about Cato before I introduce our next speaker. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, many of which are here, uh, Cato is doing extremely well. We're having a record year in terms of uh, financial contributions. We're up a significant amount, and we were up a significant amount last year. Um, so thank you for that. The good news is we're able to invest those resources because while uh, we're doing very well pat compared to our history, we're still small compared to the people we compete with. So there are many, many useful uh, uh, uses of those resources. We're also having a record year in terms of production. Being an old business guy, I think in terms of production, you think in terms of the number of appearances in the media, uh, radio, TV, um, <clears throat> newspapers. We're having a record year in terms of, uh, of seminars that we're having at Cato and participation in those seminars. Uh, we're having great results in areas like the, our constitutional studies group that uh, won 10 out of 11 cases where they filed amicus briefs after winning uh, 15 out of 18 cases a year before. Uh, you've seen the impact that, that Michael Cannon has had in terms of the Obamacare debate. So we're having a very successful year in terms of impact. We've got some very exciting new projects underway. One I'm particularly excited about is the new Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where we are creating what I believe is the most serious challenge ever to the Federal Reserve's monetary and regulatory policies. Uh, we've been put, able to put together an incredibly distinguished group of academic and business advisors, including two Nobel laureates. Um, there's never been a group like this that's been organized to challenge Fed policy. A lot of these individuals are not really libertarians, but they do believe that an undisciplined Federal Reserve is a tremendous challenge to both economic well-being and it's also a challenge uh, to freedom. We're accelerating our Center for Science, <clears throat> where we're really taking on the global uh, climate change movement, and all we're really challenging them is to prove this from a scientific perspective. Their claims to scientific certainly are simply false, and we're challenging that belief. And we've uh, added a really high-quality group of adjunct scientists, most of which started out as environmentalists and then discovered the science wasn't true. And when they discovered that fact, they were pushed out of the, uh, out of the in movement, and now they're challenging that science. And we're going to be becoming the voice, academically credible voice, challenging the global uh, climate change movement. Uh, we, one of our sponsors has recently funded a program to accelerate our efforts with the youth movement, where we've been very successful, what we think can be more impactful. We're going to put a lot of substantial additional resources in our online <coughs> outreach to young people in particular. One of the things we're clearly seeing is a, is a libertarian student movement on campus that's very exciting. Uh, uh, we see that in much energy as we speak on campuses and we work with campuses group. Uh, a lot of interest in libertarian ideas. In fact, both conservatives and liberals are talking about the libertarian moment. Now, you wouldn't know that based on the actual policies uh, going on in, in Congress, but for the first time, I believe, in my life, libertarian ideas are being seriously considered and objectively evaluated. And I think Cato and those of you that are sponsors and, and, and board members really get a tremendous credit for that because Cato has been the leading voice from academically, objectively credible research that has allowed the libertarian 
ideas and policies and concepts to be heard. And that's a tremendous victory, even though we're still in an uphill fight. So those of you that are sponsors of Cato have a right to be very proud of the success of your organization. It's, it's really doing very well, and I, I thank you for that support. Thank you very much. Um, it is now my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, uh, Randy Barnett, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Um, and he is a, the Carmike Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown University Law Center, the center where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. After graduating from Northwestern University and Harvard Law School, he tried many felony cases as a prosecutor in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago. <laughs> He's been a visiting professor at Northwestern and Harvard Law School. In 2008, he was awarded, <coughs> awarded the uh, Guggenheim Fellowship in Constitutional Studies. Uh, Professor Barnett has appeared before the Supreme Court. He lectures internationally and appears frequently on radio and television programs on CBS, PBS, NBC, NPR, Fox, etc. Um, Randy's scholarship includes more than 80 articles and reviews, as well as eight books, which is a lot of production, including Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty, Constitutional Law and Context, and Contract Cases and Doctrine. And today he's going to talk about restoring the lost contribution. Please welcome Randy Barnett. Well, it's great to be here. It's always great to be back in Chicago, where it's my hometown. I grew up in Calumet City, uh, south of the city. I, as John told you, um, I was a Cook County State's Attorney here for four years in the Felony Trial Division, trying many cases. So uh, it's always a great pleasure to be back in my hometown. Uh, I have a number of thank yous myself to make before I give you, if I, if I give you the talk that I've prepared today. I want to I thank John Allison. Uh, for the work that he's done for the Cato Institute. I just recently saw John uh, give a talk at the Federal Society National Convention about his new book. It was just an awesome talk. I highly recommend that you pick up John's new book um, about how we should approach liberty uh, in the future. Uh, I need to thank Ed Crane um, for the work that he's done in establishing the Cato Institute. He's a hero of mine, a hero of liberty, so a hero of, I'm sure, everybody in this room. Um, I need to thank uh, Ilya Shapiro and Trevor Burris, who worked with me on the Obamacare challenge before I was one of the lawyers in the case. Uh, we worked on this very closely. We filed many amicus briefs. Ilya Shapiro and I have the distinct privilege of being the only two lawyers who attended every Court of Appeals argument uh, around the country. Um, uh, and they did enormously great work with me. I want to thank uh, John Adler and, and Mike um, Canner for the work that they've been doing. Cannon, I'm sorry, for the work that they've been doing on this Obamacare challenge. It's hugely important. I have an op-ed that's scheduled to run in Friday's USA Today, in which I say that this lawsuit uh, provides Republicans with the opportunity to invest the energy that it would take to write a genuine market-based alternative health care plan during the during the beginning of this year, because there's now a very good chance. Um, that uh, they'll be faced with a ruling in which something will have to be done, and the enormous pressure is going to be brought to bear on them simply to fix the law by allowing subsidies to flow through state exchanges, something they can do in a single-line bill. Uh, and in order to resist that temptation, resist that pressure, they ought to right now be investing time and effort in developing a, a, a real bill that goes through committees um, that actually is a bipartisan bill that will reform health care now so that when the ruling comes down, they'll be in a position to, do something, to actually introduce that bill rather than what they're going to be pressured on doing. And also, the existence of such a bill moving through Congress would actually make it more likely, I think, for the court to come out with the right ruling. 
uh, in the Keene case, because they'll know if they do, there usually is an alternative there. So I need to thank, uh, I want to thank John and Mike for doing that and, and for getting that ball rolling. It was because, really, of the Vala conspiracy, where I blog and where John blogs, we're the source of all the challenges to Obamacare that have gotten the Supreme Court so far, and the Cato Institute has been with us every step of the way um, in actually translating the theories that we developed on the blog into law briefs uh, with the support, the internal support of the Constitutional Studies Center of the Cato Institute. Finally, last but not least, I need to thank my wife, Beth, for marrying me. (laughs) Yesterday was our 35th wedding anniversary. We celebrated here in Chicago. our hometown. So um, at any rate, I had a lot of people to thank. What I'm going to talk about today uh, is not, uh, as John just said, uh, my, my previous book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, but a book I'm currently uh, writing, um, uh, and which, in fact, I'm pleased to say I have received now two offers to publish by trade presses as of today, and another trade house was meeting, the board was meeting this morning. I heard the, the, the meeting went well. We'll see if a third offer develops. It's a book that's called Our Republican Constitution. Um, So it's got a name that's going to sort of raise eyebrows in this room, uh, and I'm going to explain that in this talk today. So you're getting a preview of this talk, of this book. Now, it's a serious talk. Uh, It's not a lighthearted talk. It's a serious talk because this is a serious audience, and you came here uh, to be uh, genuinely stimulated, uh, and so that's my intent here, to talk about the thesis of this book. American politics today is bitterly divided between two opposing camps. It seems that each side of the political divide exists in its own world, with its own narrative, even its own facts. We've seen this recently in the case of Ferguson. And this world differs entirely from those who may live next door or who work in the next office, yet seemingly who live in a different world. But what is it exactly that divides us? What are the competing worldviews that animate uh, these competing camps? In this talk, I'm going to present just one of several aspects of these two worldviews, but one that I believe lies at the core of today's debate, the existence of two fundamentally divergent views of the Constitution of the United States. I call these divergent conceptions the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution, but I don't intend these labels to be partisan. There are political conservatives who hew to some aspects of the Democratic Constitution and some progressives who adopt aspects of the Republican one. Many people flit between conceptions depending on which one happens to conform or produce the results that they like. I chose the term Democratic and Republican constitutions for many reasons, uh, but one of them was simply that both terms have deep roots in our constitutional history and that neither is a pejorative term. I don't like arguments by labeling. Um, both these labels have a positive connotation, I think, as they think they ought to. Now, what this debate is, what these two competing conceptions of the Constitution are about at their heart is competing, two competing conceptions of popular sovereignty. Those who adhere to the Democratic Constitution hold a different conception of popular sovereignty than those who adhere to the Republican Constitution. So I need to begin by explaining the role that popular sovereignty plays in our thinking about the Constitution. The concept of popular sovereignty was first developed in the United States about the time of our founding. Back then, it was a first principle of political theory that sovereignty, or what's sometimes considered to be the right to rule, must reside somewhere in any polity. While the ultimate sovereign was thought to be God, who ruled the world, on earth, monarchs claimed to be the sovereign rulers of their own people, ruling by delegation from God, or what was called divine right. 
When the Americans had their revolution and rejected the rule of the English king, political theory required them to say, well, who is your sovereign in this new polity? The answer they gave was the people themselves were the ultimate sovereign. But this raised at least as many questions as it solved. If sovereignty is supposed to be the answer to the question of who has the right to rule, in what sense do the people rule? This seems actually like a contradiction. We need government to rule the people, but the people themselves are supposed to be the ultimate ruler. So how does that work? How does popular sovereignty work that way? What I'm calling the democratic constitution is one way to address the problem of how the sovereign people can be said to rule. If sovereignty is conceived as residing in the people collectively or as a body, then popular sovereignty means rule by the people as a body. And rule by the people as a body means rule according to the will of the people, the will of that body. Now, of course, it makes perfect sense to talk about the will of a sovereign monarch, but what sense does it make to talk about a body of individuals? In what sense do they have a collective will or a will at all? What is the collective will of the people in this room, for example, right now? Now, no one who makes claims about the will of the people claims that there must be, or really ever is, unanimous consensus of everyone to some particular will or desire that or something they want. In practice, the collective will of the people must reside in the desires of a majority or supermajority of the people. It doesn't because it cannot rest on the desires of everyone. Therefore, in operation, a conception of popular sovereignty based on ruling according to the will of the people means ruling according to the will of a majority of the people. So the democratic constitution starts with a collective vision of popular sovereignty based on the will of the people as a group. And the ultimate will of the people can be only that of the majority or the greater number. According to this conception, then, a legitimate constitution is a democratic constitution. It sets up institutional mechanisms by which the desires of a majority of the people can be expressed. If a well-constructed democratic, uh, well democratic constitution based on the collective conception of popular sovereignty is one that allows the views of a majority to prevail, then a number of important implications follow from this starting point. First and foremost, any principle or practice that gets in the way of the will of the majority or uh, uh, the will of the majority or majority rule is presumptively illegitimate and requires special justification. Under the democratic constitution, the only individual rights that are legally enforceable are the product of majoritarian will. Whether the will of majorities who, in the legislature who create what are called legal rights or the will of majorities who ratified the Constitution and its amendments who create constitutional rights. So under the democratic Constitution, first comes government and then comes rights. First one needs to establish a polity with a legislature that represents the will of the people, and this legislature will then decide which rights get legal protection and which do not. The democratic Constitution is also a living Constitution whose meaning evolves to align with contemporary popular desires so that today's majority is not bound by what's called the dead hand of the past. The will of yesterday's majority cannot override legitimately the will of today's majority, so the Constitution must evolve in order to reflect the will of today's majority. Under the Democratic Constitution, unelected judges who are not accountable to the majority present what Alexander Bickel called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. 
Judges are not selected to represent the desires of anyone. They are appointed, not elected. And the federal system, they, in the federal system, they serve for life. To the extent that they invalidate popularly enacted laws, these unelected and unaccountable judges are thwarting the will of the people, as manifested by their elected representatives, and that's presumptively illegitimate. Under the democratic constitution, judges are told that they should exercise their power of judicial review with restraint. They should defer to the will of the popularly enacted, elected branches by adopting a presumption of constitutionality that simply presumes, and sometimes even irrebuttably presumes, that properly um, enacted legislation, uh, that legislatures have acted properly when they restrict the liberties of the people. For the people, they say, are only restricting themselves. And how are they to govern them? And how they are to govern themselves is for their democratically selected representatives to decide, not judges. Today, belief in the democratic constitution is so pervasive among both progressives and conservatives, among Democrats and Republicans, that you might be sitting there thinking, uh, well, what other view of the constitution could there be? And so perhaps the most important point of this talk, as well as the book that I'm writing now about this, is simply to identify and describe this other point of view, what I am calling the Republican Constitution, so that you can recognize it as a distinct vision of the Constitution. What separates the Republican Constitution from the Democratic Constitution is the conception of popular sovereignty, where the Democratic Constitution views the sovereignty as residing in the people collectively or as a group, the Republican Constitution views sovereignty as residing in the people as individuals. A Republican Constitution views the natural and inalienable rights of these joint and equal sovereign individuals as preceding the formation of governments, so that first comes rights and then comes government. Indeed, as the Declaration of Independence tells us, it is to secure these rights that governments are instituted among men. It states that as the fundamental purpose of government, to secure these pre-existing natural rights. The, this individualistic conception of popular sovereignty was most strikingly presented in the first great constitutional case decided by the Supreme Court in 1793, just four years after the Constitution was adopted. The case was Chisholm versus Georgia, and it involved a lawsuit brought against the state of Georgia by a citizen of South Carolina. The suit was for breach of contract to pay for goods that had been supplied to Georgia during the Revolutionary War. Now, Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution specifies, quote, that the judicial power of the United States shall extend to controversies between a state and citizens of another state. That's what the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over, controversies between a state and citizens of another state, which certainly seem to cover a suit brought by a citizen of South Carolina against the state of Georgia. The state of Georgia, however, asserted that it had sovereign immunity from such a lawsuit and even refused to appear in the Supreme Court to contest the suit because they denied the court had jurisdiction. In Chisholm, by a vote of four to one, the Supreme Court rejected Georgia's assertion of sovereign immunity. The majority concluded instead that members of the public could sue state governments because sovereignty rests with the people rather than with the states. The justices in Chisholm affirmed that in America, the states are not kings and their legislatures are not the supreme successor to the crown. In his opinion in Chisholm, Justice James Wilson, who had been among the most influential delegates uh, to the Constitutional Convention from Pennsylvania, 
um, began his opinion by stressing that the Constitution itself nowhere uses the term sovereign. Here's what he said, quote, To the Constitution of the United States, the the term sovereign is totally unknown. There was only one place in the Constitution, quote, where it could have been used with propriety, referring to the preamble. But there, he said, even in that place, it would not perhaps have comported with the delicacy of those who ordained and established that Constitution. They might have announced themselves sovereign people of the United States, but but serenely conscious of the fact they avoided the ostentatious declaration. One reason Wilson might have been making this argument is he is reputed to have been the person who provided the first written draft version of the Constitution. So it was he actually who was sitting down there deciding which words to use and which words not to. Now, Wilson contended that if the term sovereignty is to be used at all, it should refer to the individual person. Quote, laws derived from the pure source of equality and justice must be found on the con- founded on the consent of those whose obedience they require. The sovereign, when traced to this source, must be found in the man, unquote, meaning the individual person. In other words, obedience must rest on the consent of the individual person who is asked to obey the law. Wilson believed that the only reason, quote, a free man is bound by human laws is that he binds himself, unquote. For Wilson, states were nothing more than an aggregate of free individuals. Quote, if one free man, an original sovereign, may bind himself to the jurisdiction of the court, he he has to go to court, quote, why may not an aggregate of free men, a collection of individual sovereigns, do this likewise? That's what states are. If the dignity of each signally is undiminished, the the dignity of all jointly must be unimpaired, he said. Now, Justice Wilson was not alone in locating sovereignty in the individual person. In his opinion in Chisholm versus Georgia, Chief Justice John Jay, our first Chief Justice, who along with Madison and Hamilton uh, authored some of the earliest uh, of the Federalist Papers, referred tellingly to, quote, the joint and equal sovereigns of this country, unquote. Jay affirmed the, quote, great and glorious principle that the people are the sovereigns of this country and, and consequently that fellow citizens and joint sovereigns cannot be degraded by appearing with each other in their own courts to have their controversies determined, unquote. In that discussion, Jay refers to that popular sovereignty in which every citizen partakes, which clearly shows that he's talking about popular sovereignty, which is what I'm talking about. Neither, now, neither Wilson nor Jay's individualistic conception of popular sovereignty conforms to the modern notion of popular sovereignty as purely a collective con- concept that applies to a group. The, no, the opinions in Chisholm represent the radical yet fundamental idea that if anyone is a sovereign, it is we the people as individuals in the citizenry as a whole rather than in a majority of the electorate. Now, what are the implications of adopting an individual rather than a collective conception of popular sovereignty? I contend that an individual conception of popular sovereignty yields a Republican rather than a Democratic constitution. Under the Republican Constitution, because the people consists of each and every person, the power to govern must be delegated to some subset of the people. That's who governs a subset of the people. This small subset of the people who are empowered to govern are not to be confused with the people themselves, but are considered to be mere servants of the people. The people are the principals or the masters, and those in government merely their agents. As agents, they are to govern on behalf of the people and subject to its ultimate control, 
And all of that, for those of the lawyers in the room, is simply standard agency law. To ensure that these servants remain within their just powers, however, under the Republican Constitution, this lawmaking power must itself be limited by law. The Republican Constitution then provides the law that governs those who govern us. The Republican Constitution provides the law that governs those who govern us. And it's put in writing so that it can be enforced against the servants of the people, each of whom must swear a solemn oath to uphold this Constitution, this one, the written one. I always like holding up the Cato Constitution when I do this as a prop. (laughs) I particularly like the Cato Constitution because for some reason, they insert the word liberty within the Constitution all over the place where it actually... No, no, they don't. It's actually... <laughs> it's the actual literal Constitution. They, they, they don't really do that. So anyway, um, they, the, the people that they swear... that servants swear a solemn oath to obey this Constitution. That's actually what the oath says. It's this Constitution. These, the servants and, uh, of, or agents who swear an oath to this Constitution, the written one, can no more change the law that governs them than we can change the speed limits that are imposed on us. In short, under the Republican Constitution, the meaning of the written Constitution, this Constitution, must remain the same until it's properly changed which is another way of saying that the written Constitution must be interpreted according to its original meaning until it is properly amended. Under the Republican Constitution, judges, too, are servants of the people, just like legislators are, and who have a duty to adhere to the law of this Constitution above any statute enacted by Congress or by the states. Judges are given lifetime tenure precisely so that they may hold legislatures within the proper scope of their just powers. And I would remind you that the Declaration of Independence refers to deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So the whole notion that they only have just powers is in the Declaration as well. And by so holding them within their just powers, they thereby protect the rights retained by the people um, and the privileges or immunities of citizens from being denied, disparaged, or abridged by the servants in the legislature. So, do we have a Republican or do we have a Democratic Constitution? I suggest that what I'm calling our Republican Constitution began with the Declaration of Independence. And it is to secure these rights that governments are instituted among men. So the proper measure of any government is how well it protects the natural and inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the Articles Articles of Confederation, which is the document under which we originally lived, only imperfectly implemented the individual popular sovereignty expressed in the Declaration. State governments were dominated by legislatures, some elected annually, with weak executives and subordinate judges. As popularly elected state legislatures enacted measures that undermined the rights of the minority to the benefit of the majority of voters and enacted laws that protected in-state businesses from out-of-state competition, the economy languished. To address these problems, a new and more Republican Constitution, based on revised Republican principles, was devised in Philadelphia to provide for a more perfect union. To better secure the natural rights of the sovereign people, states were barred from impairing the obligations of contract or interfering with interstate commerce or commerce with foreign nations. These and other powers were placed in the hands of a new form of national government. The powers of this national government were then divided into three separate and co-equal branches, each of which was to provide checks and balances on the other. 
Lawmaking power was to be separate from its enforcement, and an independent judiciary was empowered to ensure that all three branches of government played by the rules laid down in the Republican Constitution. And the lawmaking power of Congress was limited to those powers herein granted. That's what the first sentence of Article I says. Congress has all legislative powers herein granted, herein granted in this Constitution. Um, and the same Constitution that all government actors take an oath to uphold. Our Republican Constitution was then put in writing to assure that it cannot be forgotten. Unfortunately, even the new and improved Republican Constitution was incomplete. Southern states continued to maintain their tyrannical and unjust rule by a majority, or in some states even of a minority, over their slaves, whose pre-existing rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were altogether denied. Eventually, a new Republican Party with an expressly anti-slavery agenda arose and supplanted the Whigs. In just six years, it captured the presidency and the control of Congress, which, in, which induced the southern states to secede from the Union, taking those they held in bondage with them. After the Civil War ended slavery by force of arms, the Republicans in the 38th Congress drafted and secured the ratification of the 13th Amendment to forever abolish slavery, even in states that had previously allowed it, and give Congress, for the first time, the enumerated power to enforce this abolition. But winning the war and amending the Constitution was not enough. Southern racists resisted the new constitutional order, engaging in a brutal campaign of public and private terrorism. So the Republicans proposed two new amendments that would finally complete our Republican Constitution. The 14th Amendment would protect the privileges and immunities of U.S. citizens from being abridged by the legislative, judicial, and executive branches of their own states. Then, when the incentives of the 14th Amendment for black suffrage proved inadequate, the Republicans drafted and secured ratification of the 15th Amendment to guarantee the rights of blacks to vote. Sadly, all these efforts to complete the Republican Constitution were stymied by the Supreme Court of the United States. In case after case, the court gutted one provision after the other, effectively nullifying key provisions of the written Constitution itself. It was no coincidence that, therefore, that it was in the 1890 case of Hans versus Louisiana that the Supreme Court declared that the 11th Amendment had repudiated Chisholm versus Georgia, the case I mentioned before, and the in favor of a principle of state sovereignty. Then, just six years after that, in Plessy versus Ferguson, the court completely deferred to the sovereign states, using their police power to segregate the races, supposedly to ensure public order. It was not until 1952, in Brown versus Board of Education, that the Supreme Court, led by a Republican, Earl Warren, who had been nominated to be Chief Justice by a Republican, Dwight Eisenhower, led a unanimous court to invalidate popularly enacted racial se racially segregated schools. Those laws were popularly enacted which was then followed by the gradual elimination of all forms of racial se segregation. Together with new federal civil rights and voting rights acts enacted with a higher proportion of congressional Republicans than Democrats at the time under the leadership of Illinois Republican Senator Everett Dirksen, these court rulings constituted a second reconstruction that finally redeemed the Republican Constitution's promise that the rights of the individual must, be take, must take precedence over the collective will of the people as manifested by a majority of the electorate. It is no coincidence that the textual provisions of the Constitution that recognize the individualist nature of popular sovereignty have had to be ignored in order to make our Constitution more democratic than it is. Take the Ninth Amendment, 
which affirms that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. We know these rights retained by the people were retained by them as individuals because the Ninth Amendment was added to the Constitution to protect, to, to, uh, uh, to protect against, prevent construing the other individual rights in the Bill of Rights as being the only rights we have. So because the other individual rights in the Bill of Rights were, the other rights in the Bill of Rights were individual rights, we know that the Ninth Amendment's rights are also individual, saying those are not the only rights we have. The Tenth Amendment then affirms that the power is not delegated by the United States, uh, to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So the Tenth Amendment acknowledges that the people, remember it says, or to the people at the end, that the people may retain powers as well as rights, and it expressly distinguishes the people from the states. And the 14th Amendment finally says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, which altered our system of federalism to create a power in Congress and in the federal courts to protect the privileges or immunities of American citizens from being abridged by their own state governments. But what are these rights, these individual rights that are retained by the people? The idea of popular sovereignty helps us better to understand, of individual popular sovereignty, helps us better to understand just what these rights and powers, privileges and immunities are that are retained by the people. Under the Republican Constitution, the rights and powers retained by the people resemble those enjoyed by sovereign monarchs. Just as sovereign monarchs may claim jurisdiction over their territories, sovereign individual citizens have jurisdiction over their private property. Just as one monarch may not interfere with the territorial jurisdiction of other monarchs, no citizen may rightly interfere with the person or property of the others. Just as monarchs may consensually alter their legal relations with other monarchs by entering into treaties, so too may fellow citizens freely alter their legal relations with their fellow citizens and joint sovereigns by entering into contracts with each other. The rights we have are really the same as the rights monarchs claim, only over a much smaller jurisdiction of each one of us. We are sort of the kings of us, so to speak. Now, of course, the Republican Constitution was established in part so that these liberties of the individual may be regulated by law. But the proper purpose of such regulation must be limited to the equal protection of the rights of each and every person, as the Equal Protection Clause eventually expressly affirmed. Any law which does not have this as its proper purpose is beyond the just powers of a Republican legislature. In short, when the liberty of a fellow citizen and joint sovereign is restricted, judges as agents of the people have a judicial duty to critically assess whether the legislature has improperly exceeded its just powers. This does not entail that judges should be speculating about the natural rights of man, either to restrict legislative power or to require that those judicially discovered rights be honored by other branches. That's not what they've been trained to do. Instead of singling out special rights or special groups for special protections, judges should ensure that the laws restricting the life, liberty, or property of any person has not been, is not irrational, arbitrary, or discriminatory. The end of such measures must be articulated by other branches, and then the means adopted to implement these ends must be critically assessed to ensure that they are neither unnecessary infringements on liberty nor improper efforts to enrich or benefit some at the expense of their fellow citizens and joint sovereigns, which we all know so much economic regulation is. 
And judges should also independently assess whether Congress has exceeded its enumerated powers or its delegated powers too much, uh, or has delegated too much of its power to the executive branch. Okay, let me conclude. Today we live in a world in which most people adhere to aspects of both the Republican and the Democratic constitutions. Sometimes they favor the will of the people, and other times they urge the protection of individual rights. Much intellectual effort has been expended to make this combination coherent, but ultimately these two positions cannot coexist. Their inherent incoherence contributes to the opportunistic assertion of the will of the people when it favors one's policy positions and the rights of individuals to be free of what's called the tyranny of the majority when it doesn't. Only by recognizing the difference between the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution can we ever hope to recapture the benefits that have distinguished the American form of constitutionalism from that of other countries. The benefits of realizing that first comes the rights of the people as individuals and only then comes government as their servant. The benefit of realizing that the will of the majority is not the solution to the problem of constitutional legitimacy, but it's the problem that a Republican form of government is needed to solve. For only a Republican constitution like ours can, if followed, secure the sovereignty of the people, each and every one. Thanks. So I'm told we have about 10 minutes that we can do questioning, and I'm to call on multiple people so we can have mics queued up uh, for the second person. Uh, so anybody, for questions, if anybody wants to ask a question, you can. Be, feel free to do so. Right here, we have one person. Is that Joe Bast, I see, of the Heartland Institute? Is that him? Okay, a functioning mic is on the way, Joe. Hi. All right. Randy, wonderful seeing you. Fantastic presentation. I want to congratulate you on the uh, uh, Bradley Foundation Award that you got just last year. Thank you, Joe. Um, it was certainly well-deserved. Um, we still have the law journals that you gave us when you left your office at IIT, right? <laughs> and I really neglected to mention that my dean, my first dean when I was a law professor, Lou Collins from IIT, Chicago Kent College of Law, who went on to become the president of IIT um, and now is retired, is also here today. Lou Collins is here. So, if, if it were not for him, I would not be standing before you today. He's the one that gave me my start. Can you recommend a couple of candidates for the U.S. Supreme Court? Should we have the opportunity to add a couple of people to it? Um, I, I'm afraid to do so because I'm afraid it might hurt their chances of actually uh, being nominated. I, I like, I'll just tell you some judges I currently like. I think highly of, I think highly of uh, Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I think highly of Diane Sykes uh, from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, there are two people that immediately come to mind as someone who I think would make uh, excellent Supreme Court justices on the basis of their track record uh, and what I think is their underlying commitment to the Constitution. But that's just for just just for this group of insiders here. We don't want to uh, we don't want to get that spread too far. I think there's a hand right here. Randy, what do you um, make of the call for the Constitutional uh, Convention of the States? 
well, uh, it's interesting you should ask. Um, at the end of my book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, a second edition of which was published this year, there's an appendix uh, to the new book, uh, and uh, it has reply to critics and other things I would change. Uh, it also has a list of 10 proposed amendments, which was originally published on Forbes.com, 10 amendments that would restore the original meaning of the Constitution in most of the cases, and other cases actually, I think, would actually improve the Constitution, because it's not a perfect document. Um, and we, through experience, have learned how I think it could be made a little bit better. So I tend to support the idea of amending the Constitution, and I know that... Um, um, Mark Levin, for example, has a book called The Liberty Amendments, and I agree with uh, some of those amendments. There's others I have some problem with, but both Mark and I agree uh, that an Article V convention uh, would be a useful exercise and that we should not rely on elections, uh, and we should not rely on the elections of Republicans in particular uh, to protect liberty and the Constitution because we know how often they've disappointed us in the past. I mean, I, I really don't, I really, uh, don't hew to the libertarian view that there's no difference between the Republicans and Democrats. I think we've now learned that there is actually a difference. There may not have been a difference in the past when we first formulated that sort of equality between them, but when I was coming up, but I think there is a difference now. But still, the Republicans cannot be counted on as friends of the Constitution um, not the whole Constitution, or of liberty, uh, not all of our liberties. And so a an Article V convention that is basically assembled by state legislatures um, might be a good option in order to uh, hold the Republicans in power, who are now in power, uh, to, to doing the right thing and to modifying the Constitution to make that possible. Uh, and I know Mark Meckler, um, uh, who is working as, for the Convention of the States as part of Citizens for a Responsive... Eric... Um, what is the name of the group? Citizens for Citizens for Self-Government. Eric O'Keefe is, is working with Mark Meckler. It's the two of their organization. Um, and you heard from Eric earlier. And I forgot to thank you as a hero of liberty uh, for what you've done in Wisconsin. It's just been incredible what you had to go through. And then the, the ability to lo your ability to lawyer up. And by the way, for those of you who make lawyers' jokes, you shouldn't make lawyers' jokes. <laughs> You should not make – I used to make them, but uh, I think it was a big mistake. Uh, it, the people that get protections in this country are people who lawyer up and have good lawyers working for them. You can make jokes about bad lawyers if you want, but not all lawyers because you want a good lawyer on your side uh, when, you have, uh, when, you have, uh, when you're in trouble. Uh, and so the best advice anybody can give you is who's a good lawyer. That's, that's the hard part, finding the good ones. But if you find a good one, then you're very, you should be very grateful to have one. So um, anyway, I, I, Eric and Mark are, have put together this Citizens for Self-Government, which is putting together a, a call for an amendments convention. It should never be referred to as a constitutional convention because it's not what the Constitution authorizes. It authorizes Article 5 authorizes a convention for proposing amendments. So it should only be called an amendments convention. That's all it's, it's able to do. And then if two-thirds of the states call for such a convention, it, shall, it says Congress shall convene one, and then anything that's produced by such a convention would then have to go out to the states for ratification, just like if it were proposed by Congress. So such a convention would actually just be – would have the same power that Congress currently has – to propose amendments to the states for ratification, but it's the device the framers put into Constitution when Congress itself became the problem, and it would not propose amendments restricting its own power. The framers saw that and anticipated that and put in an alternative route by which the states can themselves could convene a con convention to propose amendments that would constrain federal power, and that is what the Convention of the States movement that Mark and Eric are doing. That The call for convention does have three platforms in it. One is to limit the... Um, the tenure of office, in, uh, you know, tenure of federal officers. The second is to establish fiscal responsibility, and the third is to limit federal power. That's the scope of the convention call they're working for. Right there, the microphone, please. Thank you. 
What is your view of the popular election of state judges? As you may well know, in, in England, for example, all judges are appointed uh, by some mechanism that is pretty much apolitical, as I understand it. As somebody from Cook County, I would just say I'm very skeptical of that last claim. <laughs> I'm skeptical of all good government, apolitical, uh, we're just doing the right thing claims, um, having grown up here. But um, I, I don't have a strong opinion on election versus appointment, uh, frankly. Uh, I think there are strengths and weaknesses to each one. We in the United States, in terms of selecting our state judges, do that a variety of ways. Sometimes they're elected, sometimes they're appointed, sometimes they're appointed, and then they must stand for retention elections, which is sometimes a good way of getting really ex- the extreme judges off the, off the courts. So I don't have a, I don't think there's a, ma- a magically one great magic solution for how they ought to be done, how this ought to be done, frankly. Right there. Professor Barnett, thank you. I'm concerned about the ability of our electorate to understand the difference and distinctions you've so ably made. Do you seriously think that the American people are ready for a convention uh, to amend the Constitution and won't be railroaded by the very forces that are railroading people every day of the week? Uh, it's an excellent question. It's a serious question. It's one that needs to be uh, considered. I, I do want to point out that I didn't come here today to talk about that proposal. I actually am talking at, Al- at the ALEC meeting tomorrow uh, about it. Mark Levin is uh, first up talking at breakfast, and I'm on a panel with Mark Meckler after that. So it's something I have an opinion on, which is I, I volunteered my opinion when asked by the, from the floor. Um, I can tell you it's a, it's a serious issue. Uh, it requires serious uh, consideration. There are people who, in good faith might doubt that this is something that could work out. Um, but we right now, we have a runaway Congress. Um, that's what we have. We've had it for a very long time. We have a runaway Congress. And the, and the founders gave us certain leverage in order to rein in a runaway Congress. And they put it, they reposed it in, they had to repose it somewhere. And they reposed it in state legislatures. That's where they put that power. Um, and so the idea that we, would utilize, that we would fail to utilize one of the levers that the framers gave us in order to restrain a runaway Congress uh, because we're afraid of what this other alternative power might be, how it might be exercised, I think it's something to think about, but I think ultimately I've resolved it on the fact that we need to stop these guys. The founders have given us a means for doing so, and we should exercise them. Just like, for example, there's a means of restricting the president by the, power, the impeachment power, uh, which needs to be there, or the president will start acting in an illegal way, because that's really the only ultimate remedy that Congress has against it. But if you take that off the table and you take this off the table and you take the power of the purse off the table, you've taken everything off the table. And now you have a runaway president and a runaway Congress. And so we have to be willing to, in some respects, uh, trust the people uh, uh, enough or really the game is up. I think I have a few more minutes right back there all the way in the back. I don't know if so. Last question. The last question. We've got to give John the last word, I think. Uh, Professor Barnett, if there was any silver lining in the uh, 2012 Obamacare decision, it's probably that uh, the Commerce Clause does not give you the power, give Congress the power to regulate everything just by virtue of being. How strong do you think that precedent is in terms of stopping Congress from a couple of years from now going back to the Commerce Clause as a 
source of legislative power for everything? Okay, um, it's a great question. I only have a couple minutes to answer it. It's actually, there's a lot of different ways of answering it. Um, the, but there's a misconception about what the, I want to start off by disabusing you of what the court actually ruled. You, you have it right, but I think a lot of people heard it wrong. It's been reported wrong. Law professors think wrongly about it. The court did not rule that Congress may uh, impose an individual mandate by using the tax power rather than the commerce power. It did not rule that. It ruled that no, the Congress did not have the power, period, did not have the power to make you engage in economic activities so that they may then regulate it. They said they, do not, you do, they did not have the power under the Commerce Clause. They did not have the power under the Necessary and Proper Clause. And they also do not have that power under the tax power. So we established that as a proposition of law, which had been highly contested by pretty much every constitutional law professor. We got five votes for that proposition. It is now the law of the land. And then I'll, I'll say why that is of limited use, and then I'll tell you what the court did say instead. It's of limited use because, in fact, Congress has never before in the history of this country ever tried to mandate economic activities so that they may regulate it. So all we ever would have going to succeed in, 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 in winning in this case was to stop Congress from doing something it had never done before. And now I think it will never do that again. But it had never done it before. It's able to regulate and prohibit almost anything it wants to under the laws that currently, under the rulings that currently has. And so it just didn't need this extra power. So we only won what was capable of winning, which was stopping Congress from doing this one thing. Now you may be saying, well, how did they manage to uphold all of Obamacare if that were true? And that is because Chief Justice Roberts adopted what's called a saving construction, in which he eliminated what the, what the law called a requirement that you buy insurance and made it an option to buy insurance. And the only thing that was left standing after he eliminated the requirement part, the mandate part, was the penalty, which he then construed as a tax because it was so low that it would not coerce people from, doing, from buying insurance. They would, they would have a choice between buying it or paying the taxes. That is what the court upheld. And it was by upholding the penalty only, at, and only because it was low, um, that it was able to uphold the rest of the law, which was the object of the exercise, which was upholding the rest of the law. But I will tell you this, why this is a major victory. If that's the only power that Congress has, if the only power Congress had to regulate us was this tax power, it doesn't. It has vast Commerce Clause powers that remain. But if it only had the tax power, and let's say the drug laws were being forced only by the tax power, it would mean that we'd have to open the prisons and let out every person who's been convicted of a drug offense in this country because everyone would be able to use drugs as long as they were to be able to pay the, the tax. And that would be, it wouldn't be a libertarian, perfectly libertarian world, but would be a far more libertarian world than the one we live under. So that's the extent to which the law that we made, which was bad law, that Congress can have this little tax to induce you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do is bad, but not nearly as bad as what, we, what the other side was urging. And what the other side was urging that we won was that Congress would have, in effect, a national problems power. And as long as it identified a problem that was national that had to do with the economy, it then had an unlimited power to do whatever it wanted. That was the argument the government was making. It's the argument that all academics were asserting against us, and that's the argument that could not can, uh, command five votes of the Supreme Court and that we prevailed upon in the Supreme Court. It was a huge victory for liberty, for the Constitution, and by the Cato Institute. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. That was great. That was great. Thanks, all of you, for coming. Thanks for your support of Cato. Uh, and I hope everybody has a nice day. Thank you. <laughs>